Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about biblical literacy. Hail the Tamarian vessel. Aye, Captain. Cinder! His face black, his eyes red. Tamak. The river Tamak. In winter. Tamak. And Jalad. At Tanagra. Damak and Jalad on the ocean. So Kath, his eyes open. The beast of Tanagra. Uzani, his army. Chaka, when the walls fell. I'm quite sure I have many listeners who recognize the introductory music I'm using today right off the bat. Rather than being music per se, it's actually a clip from near the end of the Star Trek The Next Generation episode, Darmok. I'll get to the reason why in just a moment, but for many people this may be obvious. It's such a rare thing that I bypass the normal theme to inappropriate conversations that I feel like I probably should shout it out, especially because I'm going to use an alternative approach for different drummer music today as well. But inappropriate conversations relies very heavily upon the compositions of Kevin McLeod. And if you've never heard his music outside of this particular podcast, it's well worth a look. His work can be found at Incompetech.com, and that is where a lot of the royalty-free music that I use here on the show comes from. The other thing I want to do right at the beginning of the program today is share a quote that I've shared actually recently on Twitter from a previous different drummer named Lee Strobel. The quote goes like this. Actually, citing Servant Magazine. The Bible isn't just the best-selling book of all time. It's consistently the best-selling book every year. Now, that in and of itself is an interesting quote, well worth some consideration. But the thing I want to start off the show today pointing out is that just because we sell a lot of copies of the Bible every year doesn't give us any indication that the book itself is being read. In fact, I'll start with a little bit of a pot shot toward the Christians in the audience and raise the question of whether or not our level as Christians of biblical literacy isn't extraordinarily low. Now, I'm not going to use any hyperbole to say it's the worst of all time, even the worst of all time in American history, because I think there's a period of time when you look in the middle of the 1800s where the thing that we call the left behind movement today leapt into existence from really virtually from non-existence. And when you're cutting new sort of doctrine and ideas out of whole cloth, you know that you've got to be dealing with a, a pretty severe level of baseline literacy. And if the country wasn't illiterate to begin with, just across the board, it certainly was biblically illiterate. And obviously when you look at moments in history like the Protestant Reformation, One of the key elements of the Protestant Reformation was this idea that the Bible ought to be translated into a language that everyday people could understand, and the backlash against that from the church hierarchy at the time being so severe that it is not an exaggeration to say that people were burned at the stake for the crime of sharing the Bible in a language that everyday people could understand. This is the opposition. I do another podcast that appears on this feed called Walk the Earth. And at some point in Walk the Earth, I may get to the current backlash against modern translations. It's not hard to find KJV-only churches out there, King James Version only. And these are churches which have fallen, some of them at least, 
into the heretical view that the only version of the Bible that counts is the version of the Bible that goes back to the early 1500s, as if the Bible didn't exist before then and leapt into existence at that point in time. Or all the others are somehow foreign and therefore unimportant or you know, not noteworthy or, or shouldn't be viewed as being, well, you know, scripture. Shouldn't be viewed as being canon or dogma. So there's even today a growing sort of you know, conflict going on in the church over which version of the Bible is legit and which one is not. And I've expressed both praise and criticism within the past year for translations like the New American Standard Bible, where at times it has done things extremely well and been one of the highest, most valuable translations out there. And at times it has actually, well, in my mind, defiled the text by changing certain passages for political reasons. So we've always had this debate and this argument about translations and about whether you know the common person is capable of understanding scripture. So what I want to do in this particular episode, talking about the literacy angle, not the illiteracy, is talk about not only can these passages in the Bible be understood by very common very ordinary people. But there's a reason that we share these stories, and I'll mention dozens today, literally dozens. Hang in with me if you're not a believer, though, because a lot of my criticisms are actually going to be directed toward the non-believing parts of our world who take for granted that for 2,000 years, or really more like four or 5,000 years, these stories have been part of our culture, and we've now decided in the last couple hundred years or so that it's unimportant. I think when I get done, I'm going to be able to make a very persuasive case that we can't make the argument that our mythology is unimportant, whether we choose to continue believing in it or not. So there's sort of the position I'm going to lay out, that the Bible is filled with stories. Perhaps I could do the same thing for the Quran. Maybe it will take another thousand years for that to be true worldwide. But speaking to a Christian audience primarily in America, but certainly elsewhere around the world, too. People who've stuck with inappropriate conversations this long, at least because they're tolerant to hear some discussion around concepts that include my religion, which is Protestant Christianity, and my politics. Well, and let's keep it going, and this time sort of a dive onto the religious side of the topic. It isn't going to step on the ground of walk the earth, however, at all, because I'm going to speak to this you know, much more higher up, 3,000, 4,000 feet up in the air, looking at it from an overall cultural perspective, and not in terms of any particular belief system or, or even perhaps a church search. A few years ago, the program on simplysyndicated.com called Books You Should Read came back from what had been sort of a, some of a dormant period, because the original incarnation of Books You Should Read was all about fans of Simply Syndicated, recording their own book reviews and sending them in to simplysyndicated.com or you know, via email. The show came back, though, in a, with an interview format sort of baked in, so it still had the ability to play MP3 recordings made by fans of particular books. And a lot of times the idea was, well, let's pull together you know similar recordings and bring them into one common show. So is it going to be a show about alternate histories? Is it going to be a show about children's books? And there was talk, and it didn't happen, which is a shame, because the show kind of slipped back into a hiatus. But there was talk about me being a guest on that show at some point to talk specifically about the Bible. Perhaps the Bible is literature. That would have been my focus. But nevertheless, they have a books you should read discussion about whether the Bible is in fact a book you should read. 
So to go back to my beginning point, we sell more copies of the Bible in the United States of America than any other book. It doesn't mean we're reading them. Now, there are good reasons for there to be a strong, consistent level of Bible sales. For one thing, every time a you know, kid gets to the third or fourth grade in his church, his church is likely to give him a Bible if they haven't given that youngster a Bible before. I was in a church service just this morning where you know, more than a dozen, I think, roughly a dozen kids, boys and girls, were both given what presumably was their first Bible. The other reason why Bible sales could be strong and consistent is because there's numerous translations out there. And I personally don't believe that it makes sense to be part of a King James-only mentality. And I also don't think that it makes sense to be part of an NIV-only tra- you know, translation mentality, or the message is the only translation. The only word is the problem there. The word only. So in my library, I've got numerous copies of Bibles, all from different translations. And I've got some in audio format, both cassette and MP3, as far as that goes. So there's lots of versions of the Bible that are out there. And I don't think any one of us, at least nobody in my circle of friends, could claim that they own every single one. It's really not possible. If you go back to the point in time, around the time of the Protestant Reformation, so you know, from maybe you know, a 500-year period in there, there was a sudden explosion of different biblical translations. And if you look on some of the websites, Bible Gateway, for example, or uh, Worldwide Study Bible, you'll find that there's translations of the Bible that I haven't even bothered to spend 30 seconds with. There are just too many, even in English translations alone, for anyone to presume to keep track of or to stay on top of. No, but what I want to talk about, though, literacy angle of understanding the Bible, there's kind of two fronts I want to deal with. One of them is the notion that storytelling is hugely important. One of the most important quotes I've heard all year, and I've been sharing it in a variety of ways, at church, at work, elsewhere, anytime I get a chance to drop this quote on people I've been doing it, so I might as well do it here too. Facts are only characters. They're worthless unless we tell their story. Now, for the sake of argument... Let's say that this quote came up in a conversation about managing large data in an analytics forum of sorts. But the idea could just as easily apply almost anywhere else. It seems like it's litigation 101 from a, from a lawyer, from a law school perspective, that the facts alone aren't necessarily going to get your client a verdict. Somebody, in this case the lawyer, has to tell the story. Now, we call those stories many things, including the word story. Storytelling being one of the most powerful medium that we have for communication today. If we suddenly lost all of our technological devices, if we suddenly didn't have movies or music to listen to or podcasts for that matter, we would still have storytelling. We would simply revert to that older, ancient form of communicating important ideas through the telling of stories. The other word that we use for it is myth and From a New Testament perspective, I'd say the word we use for that is parable. But just because something is mythological doesn't mean it shouldn't be told and understood. And that's the argument that I'm going to make for people who feel that there is no reason why they should be familiar with the Bible, that science is on one side of the spectrum, myth is on the other, and that uh, the science side is important and needs to be protected and must be understood, and the myth part is terrible and wrong and foolishness and needs to be disregarded. There is a place for both of these. And we really only get in trouble, in my opinion, when we're telling the myth and 
presume it's science, or when we allow mythological ideas to creep into our factual assessment of what's true and what's not, when we're doing science. I've spoken before in inappropriate conversations. There are instances where it's not that tough to point to what's going on on the scientific side of any debate between science and religion and point out that, hey, there's, there's things that are not yet proven there. There are hypotheses that aren't yet solid there. There's things that we ought to still be testing. And if you declare them to be true before that testing is complete, well, then you've allowed science itself to become some form of religion and a fairly pungent form at that. On the other hand, I don't even think I need to tell this particular audience what a horrific crime against you know, an intellect it is for us to look at our myths and presume that they're giving us some sort of scientific formula. You see this anytime someone presumes that they've got the answer to how old the universe is and no one needs to do any study because somebody wrote something down in a book that was handed down through an oral translation over multiple centuries and that's just fact and it's wrong to question it. You know, the, these are the same mistake, two sides of the same coin. So I want to dabble quite a bit today in these questions of myth and parable and storytelling, and I want us to do so by trying to get maybe past this introduction a little bit, clear our minds, be a little bit more open-minded than we otherwise would, would be. So instead of coming in saying, hey, I'm a Christian, and this guy is telling me that I don't know, I don't know the Bible. Well, you know what? Maybe you're an exceptional Christian, but I meet Christians every day who don't know the Bible. And I'm not talking about chapter and verse and finding your way through the book. I'm just saying, you know, what did Jesus say about this? And almost always, no matter what this is, I meet a lot of Christians with a lot of strong opinions about what Christianity is all about, who don't have the first idea what Jesus said about the thing that they have the most passion about. Spoken about that many times before on inappropriate conversations. It's a pillar of the show, as a matter of fact, so there's no reason to go into an example today. But I also am going to turn to the non-Christian listener out there, and my challenge to you is to say, ask yourself this question. Greg's going to do some name-dropping in this show. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about Paul. I'm going to do a quick overview, literally a sweeping, hurried overview of the Old Testament I'm going to talk about end times and the revelations just a little bit. And then I'm going to dive into one you know, particular passage of the Bible that I've got a lot of passion about. But as I do so, what I want you to do is think to yourself about whether or not this is all really familiar. And how would we communicate with each other as effectively as we do today if we didn't understand these stories? If we didn't have the shorthand of these stories? Had I appeared on Books You Should Read when it was an active, going podcast, I think I would have started off with the comparison to say, hey, the Star Trek Next Generation episode, Darmok, which is one of my favorites. If you haven't seen any episode of Star Trek TNG before, that's one to seek out and watch. Why not start there? Because it tells a lot of the story I want to tell today. What happens if you take the commonly understood myths of our society and just bled them away, made them disappear? What if we had no ability to talk about characters like Benedict Arnold or George Washington crossing the Delaware? What if these stories, myths if you will, but perhaps in this case myths built about, about the behavior of real people in real situations, what if you drowned all that away and it was gone forever? We use a tremendous amount of shorthand with each other that is built upon these stories. And that Star Trek episode was based entirely upon a race of aliens with 
very powerful technology. The ability to pose a threat, at least to the Enterprise spaceship, if not to the entire Federation of Planets from which the Enterprise had gone to explore. What if their entire language was built upon common um, stories? What if it was built upon proper names to where the best translation software and in the Star Trek universe, their universal translators are extremely powerful, extremely nimble. What if they could only translate the words that they were speaking into the proper names and there was no context for it? The example used in the episode itself was, what if I were to say to you, Juliet, standing on her ledge? Everybody on the bridge of the Enterprise understood that phrase to mean somebody who was in a moment of expecting romance to happen. That it's a romance story, a forbidden romance story. And Juliet, standing on her ledge, conveys all kinds of ideas. Sneaking away, um, having to go against the will of your family, uh, meeting a lover late at night when no one's watching. All of those ideas summed up into the one tight little phrase about Juliet looking out her window. Well, if you take away what Shakespeare has given us, then, ah, there's the rub. And before you say, hey, methinks he doth protest too much... Clear your mind for a second. Give me 30 seconds just through this promo for the great old podcast, Books You Should Read, and come back on the other side, ready to ask yourself the question, have you heard this story before? Are those characters familiar to you? Is what that's trying to convey something that I almost take for granted? Because even though I've never read the Bible end to end, if that's you, you still know what it's talking about. We'll see on the other side. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the library, Books You Should Read is coming back to simplysyndicated.com, this time with a little bit of a different approach, but still fueled by you. So send in your reviews of books you love or even books you don't love. We'd like to hear them all. Meanwhile, I'll be hosting every week. My name is Kennedy, and I'll be talking to you very soon. I've recently had the pleasure of appearing on a podcast called Tech Support Rich. This, for many of us, will be an obvious reference to the Simply Syndicated show and the you know person who runs Simply Syndicated itself. The episode, I think, is number seven. It's simply Conversation with Greg from Inappropriate Conversations is kind of how it's titled. And it's available to you only via paid download, 99 pence. If uh, you can do the translation into U.S. dollars, that's probably about a buck seventy, give or take. Or it's also available free of charge to people who are already enrolled or signed up for Simply Everything. I recommend Simply Everything. It has, as the name implies, just about everything that Simply Syndicated has ever produced, including new shows that have been created with exclusive content just for people who subscribe to Simply Everything. Tech Support Rich is one of those shows, and that's why it's available either through pay download or because you're on the subscription model. During that Tech Support Rich show, I was expressing some frustration about the fact that probably it's still true today that your average Sunday school class with a group of very young children begins its exploration of the Bible with the Old Testament. Because, well, if you picked up the book and I said, here's a Bible, I want you to read it through, where else are you going to start with the beginning? And there are reasons to begin with the Old Testament as, you know, it's got some important background material. And even for a very young you know, child learning about Christianity as a religion, the background material that's provided through Judaism is really important. But I often ask Christians in 
you know, group, small group settings, a trick question. What is the earliest verse of the Bible? Not in terms of archaeological discovery, not in terms of how the book is laid out, but if you actually were to lay out the Bible chronologically, where does it really start? What's verse number one? What happens in the history of the universe first in biblical accounts? And the obvious answer is Genesis 1, right? Somewhere in Genesis 1, maybe Genesis 2. There's a couple of creation stories in Genesis. But the real correct answer to that from a Christian perspective is John. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The beginning that's being referred to there is not the beginning of the earth. Not the creation of this solar system. It's talking about the beginning before that beginning. It's talking about a beginning that really, to some theological scholars, can't even be called a beginning because it's, it's always existed. The part of this thing we might call existence, bigger than the universe, beyond the universe, that is eternally existed. So... I don't think there's any good reason to begin a look at the Bible with the Old Testament. I've got a Christian bias, so I think the way to begin the Bible is with the New Testament. And the obvious answer there is to begin the Bible with Jesus. So the first set of these references I want to make are references specifically to Jesus. Jesus the person, Jesus the teacher. And I kind of want to walk through them in a semi-organized way. But all I'm really going to do is just drop a lot of names here and just say, hey, if I said these words, if I dropped this phrase on you, would you understand what I mean? And I would say that if you're a Christian and you don't, shame on you. You probably should. This is obvious. This is easy. And if you're a non-Christian, don't be embarrassed if you know all this stuff by heart, because it is part of our culture. It is how we communicate with each other. And when I get to the end of this inappropriate conversation, I'm going to suggest that we would all be in very big trouble if we lost this shorthand forever. If we didn't learn enough to be able to communicate with each other better than Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Starship Enterprise stranded on a planet with a person who can't communicate with him at all because he only speaks in stories and Picard doesn't know the stories. Well, among the stories, perhaps the most famous of the parables, is the Good Samaritan. I'd be shocked if there was anybody listening, at least, again, in Nations like the United States and England, who had never heard of the term Good Samaritan before. But we can throw Good Samaritan around like shorthand. In her essay, A Defense of Abortion, Judith Jarvis Thompson uses the concept of Good Samaritan and turns it on its head. She is so convinced we all understand it. She doesn't quote chapter and verse. She doesn't relate the parable in great detail. She just simply uses it to say, hey, maybe we have some people who can't be good Samaritans, but we ought to hold them to the standard of being minimally decent Samaritans. Well, we don't understand the concept of minimally decent Samaritanism if we don't understand the concept of good Samaritan to begin with. It's that idea. What about the prodigal son? That one also should be obvious. Less obvious, but perhaps just as important in some ways, is the concept of a pearl of great price. Would somebody finding a pearl of that luster trade everything he owns to be the person who has possession of the pearl of great price? It's a parable that Jesus use, uses to try to describe what the kingdom of heaven is like. Then you get near the end of Jesus' ministry, and he starts talking about what's going to happen at that post-death moment, or the end of the universe, the second coming, when he is put in charge of judging the good from the bad. And we talk about this as separating the sheep from the goats. These are common ideas. And if I were to say to somebody, 
you know, you're going into this company, you're going to do an evaluation. When you're done, there's going to be some layoffs. And I, I don't have to word it that way. I could probably look to my friend and say, hey, I've got this difficult assignment. I'm going to go in and try to restructure this company. And the first thing I've got to do is separate the sheep from the goats. It's that kind of shorthand. It's that powerful. But let's go back to the beginning. If I were to use the expression, riding on a donkey, there's you know, most people, having seen any nativity play at any point in their life, whether they understand what the play's significance is or not, would probably be able to guess, hey, isn't that the merry lady riding on a donkey, pregnant, going to, going to Bethlehem? Riding on a donkey, no room in the inn, is another one. Following a star is another then you get to this concept at the beginning of Jesus' ministry about spending 40 days in the desert. You can imagine this being used as shorthand in sketch comedy, for example, or in sort of multi-layered black comedy, when somebody's saying, hey, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm stuck out in the wilderness. So, well, I'll see you in 40 days. You know, it's, it's a reference that means something to us. And I'm going to get to some numeric references later, just because I think the numbers themselves are interesting. Here's another numeric reference, just... You know, speaking of Jesus, being tempted how many times? How many times? Well, it's three, of course. Tempted three times. Many of us know this without having ever opened up Matthew's Gospel to read it, or the parallel passages in Mark and elsewhere. Man cannot live on bread alone. This is a phrase we get straight from the Bible. The idea of sending somebody out not to be fishers, but to be fishers of men. Or talking more about the miraculous accounts that you find in the Gospels and how we use this terminology a lot, sometimes sarcastically, sometimes reverentially. But we talk about turning water into wine or multiplying fishes and loaves, the feeding of the 5,000, for example. I mentioned that is, these references don't always pop up reverentially, but understanding the story helps you be sarcastic about the story. So say you wanted to commit some sort of high blasphemy, and you were a punk group in England in the 1980s and named Crass, and you wanted to take a pot shot at the church. You wanted to level a sort of a, a sarcastic blow against Christianity. Well, you could name one of your albums the uh, Feeding of the 10,000, the Second Sitting. And that only works as a sarcastic joke if we understand the kernel of truth, or the mythology upon which it is based. Walking on water, calming the storm, or one of my favorite, casting the first stone. You don't have to get too far into that phrase before people begin to understand kind of what that means and, and what uh, Jesus was speaking about and speaking against people who are self-righteous and judgmental. Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. If I were to write a science fiction short story and name a character Lazarus, wouldn't all of us be reading the pages of that story, sort of assuming that at some point this guy is going to die or have a near-death experience or be in a serious coma for many, many years and come, what, back to life out of it? Because a name as obscure as Lazarus can almost be translated in our cultural subconscious into someone rising from the dead. In fact, for many people, Lazarus connects as directly with rising from the dead as the name Jesus, because we don't have that many other stories about Lazarus. That's the one thing the name tends to mean. In the very first episode of Walk the Earth, I talk about the concept of shaking the dust off your feet, that if you've been sent as a missionary or sent as an evangelist into a town and the town won't hear what you have to say, 
Well, Jesus's instruction to his disciples was that that's going to happen. And when it does, you shake the dust off your feet as a signal that you're done with them. You know, you're not going to, you're not going to try to, you know, overload the Supreme Court with your judges. You're not going to try to build a grassroots effort to elect all of your people to the state legislature or to Congress so you can force them to believe what you want them to believe against their will. No, you shake the dust off your feet and you walk away. That's what the Bible says. But again, there's a lot of Christians, especially a lot of politically active Christians, who are at the very least fuzzy about what the Bible, well, says, or at the very least what it means. I might describe those people as Pharisees. Could there be any person listening to this show who does not know what the word Pharisee roughly means or what kind of currency we're trading in, that you're dealing with people who were, at least in Jesus' time, viewed as hypocrites, powerful religious figures who set a standard for themselves that was different from the standard they set for everybody else? Or would we even be the slightest bit confused to hear that Jesus referred to them as a brood of vipers? You know, I love when it occasionally happens that a Christian pastor or a Christian educator will speak up about some things that are aggravating them, that are happening in the political sphere, and will refer to the popular views of televangelists or those politicians who dress themselves up in Christianity. They refer to them as a brood of vipers from time to time. Well, I don't mind that a bit. I certainly don't view it as in any way blasphemy. It's actually an appropriate rendering of the text. How about the idea of a camel through the eye of a needle? Or the uh, notion of rendering unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. Giving the king what is the king's, but keeping your spirituality for yourself. Or this one, which I bet most people don't recognize as being the words of Jesus himself. Live by the sword, die by the sword. It wouldn't shock me if people thought, well, hey, that's probably coming from some Roman writer dealing with uh, either Roman or maybe Greek writer dealing with Alexander the Great's era and you know, sort of the violence of kingship. Um, yeah, maybe there's a, an antecedent there. But it's also the words of Jesus straight from the gospel. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Or sitting at the right hand of God, which is a good thing. Or the weeping and gnashing of teeth because you're not sitting at the right hand of God. That's a bad thing. I mean, weeping and gnashing of teeth is a much more colorful way of talking about regret than just saying the word regret. Even some of the, you know, the words, phrases we've heard way too much, way too often, they've almost been bled of meaning. Things like the way, the truth, and the life is one example. Pontius Pilate recorded in the Gospels, asks the question, what is truth? It's a good question for people who are talking about the way, the truth, and the life, to be honest with you, especially if all they really want to talk about is life (laughs) instead of the way and the truth. You will know them by their fruit. The idea of sacrificial lamb. What is the third day all about? I mean, if I said, hey, I'm going to go to this concert, it's a group called Third Day, Would it really be a huge leap, even for your average unchurched person, to guess that that might be a contemporary Christian band? That it might be a reference to the idea that on the third day Jesus rose from the dead? Doubting Thomas is a phrase that I think most people know without realizing necessarily that it's biblical. Or the notion of second coming. One of my favorite all-time editions of the magazine National Lampoon. I believe it came out in 1984, because if I'm remembering right, the cover was a joke on 1984. Instead of Big Brother is watching you, it was somebody peeping through the keyhole of some of a, of a teenage girl taking a shower, and the caption read, Little Brother is watching you. Um, that sort of, you know, sort of 
edgy National Lampoon type humor. But one of the joke advertisements that they had, because National Lampoon would do that from time to time, not unlike Saturday Night Live, you know, the you know somewhere early on in the show there'll be a bit that's an ad. It's not really an ad. It's a sketch dressed up as an advertisement. Well, they had a full page ad for something, a movie, a big blockbuster movie coming to theaters called Jesus Two: The Second Coming. He's big, he's back, and he wants your eternal soul. So, Second Coming, it has so much currency that we can make jokes about it on the pages of National Lampoon. And if Leonard Cohen pens a song called If It Be Your Will, well, heaven help us if we don't recognize that he's making an intentional reference to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that the undercurrent, the subtext of his song, has that level of grief, that level of you know, risk involved in it. That's just dealing with Jesus. Let me take a little bit of a shorter approach to talk about Paul and just say, when you hear the term blinded by the light, if you're really a savvy music listener, you'll understand that that's Bruce Springsteen's song from his very first album, Greetings from Asbury Park, New Jersey. I wouldn't fault you, though, if you thought of it instead as being a Manfred Mann song, because the band Manfred Mann, especially in the 70s, made an entire career out of remaking songs by Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen and turning them in to album-oriented rock hits. But Blinded by the Light is just as much an expression of the moment in the book of Acts where the person named Saul began the transformation into becoming the evangelist named Paul. Blinded by the Light. And this all happened, that crucial moment happened in a specific geographical location. And I'm going to pause just for a second, string this out, to see if maybe there's people who listen to inappropriate conversations who are beating me to the punch and perhaps even, you know, kind of speaking, if not yelling to their MP3 player, the road to Damascus. For crying out loud, it's the road to Damascus. I don't think there's a year goes by when I don't make some reference, either in church or at work, to having a hope that somebody that we're having a you know struggle dealing with will have a road to Damascus moment where they will turn Perhaps after being blinded by the light, they will turn and take a completely different course. Of course, one of the most mis- misquoted passages in all the Bible is this idea that the money is the root of, that money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. What Paul says in his letter to Timothy is that the love of money is the root of evil. But nevertheless, this is a phrase we know so well, we speak so often, we talk about so freely, that we've even got to the point of misquoting it. It's the same thing as the song Purple Haze by Jimi Hendrix, where some people actually think the lyrics is, excuse me while I kiss this guy. Same idea. And a lot of what Paul says, trading in the currency of the idea of false prophet, I don't know that false prophet was quite, quite a cachet term in Judaism at the time. But by the time Paul gets done writing his letters, false prophet becomes a conversation in Christianity that resonates with me to this very day. If you like food and talking about food, then why not listen to Crimes Against Food with Mia Steele and me, Gloria Lind. You can find us on simplysyndicated.com or download through iTunes. I want to jump into the Old Testament for a second because I think that in no part of what we call the Christian Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, no part of it has better storytelling, more emphatic imagery than the Old Testament. In fact, as I'm sitting here, I'm thinking about 
things that I left out. Uh, being in the belly of a whale. I forgot to mention that one. There is so much, not just in the the first five books of the Bible, but also just in the references that you get in the prophets and also in Psalms. And I want to start with Psalms by just dropping a couple of references right off the bat. The notion of the valley of the shadow of darkness, or the idea that my cup runneth over. These are straight out of the 23rd Psalm. It's probably the most famous of all the Psalms. And that's, of course, why the, the, the images are so easy to call and to use and to leverage something. To say, you know what, I'm going off into a new endeavor. It's a little bit scary for me. I don't know how it's going to turn out. But if I say that I'm going into the valley of the shadow of darkness, I say so trading in the Christian and really the Jewish currency of saying I go in there with a great deal of confidence because I know the Lord is with me. The Lord has always been with me. In fact, my cup runneth over with his blessings. Or elsewhere, not so much talking about David, who is credited as the writer of Psalm 23. Let's talk about Solomon, his son, and concepts like there's a time for every season. Well, it's positively biblical. In fact, when the birds wrote the song, Turn, 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 they went to the book of Ecclesiastes and just pulled the lyrics right out of the book. Splitting the baby. You know, the wisdom of resolving a conflict between two people by threatening to give both of them half, which is good for neither one of them, splitting the baby. That's a biblical concept. Or even just to pull it back a ways and just say, let's just talk about the characters. What if I'm literally dropping names here and nothing else? David and Goliath. Is it possible to watch a season of college football or basketball or hockey or baseball even without having somebody drop a reference to David and Goliath? It is so common that if you removed David and Goliath from our vernacular, I don't believe that your average sports commentator could talk about a game between a powerful foe and an unrecognized opponent without making up some other story to fit the bill. David and Goliath. The apple of my eye. That phrase alone appears in the Old Testament in three different places. Lift you up on eagle's wings. Chariots of fire. I understand there's some people who went to the 1981 movie, which ultimately won Best Picture, Chariots of Fire, not expecting as much religious content as they got. Well, now they know. Chariots of Fire, a direct reference to the end of the ministry of one prophet and being handed off to the ministry of another. One of my favorites is the, the notion of, and the bones came together. If you wanted to read an Old Testament prophet and you hadn't read the Bible before, didn't really understand much of it, and just wanted to dive in somewhere, just somewhere random, Ezekiel, to me, is a very entertaining book. Now, without some of the history that comes earlier in the book, yeah, some of the storytelling is a little bit sketchy, but if you just understand the general principle of them being in exile and Ezekiel trying to cast a vision to both keep people together and prepare them for getting back home again and rebuilding the temple and all that other sort of stuff. The thing I like the best about the book of Ezekiel is the colorful imagery. It also has a reference to baptism being done by sprinkling rather than immersion. That's a secondary Christian issue, but that's Ezekiel's book. To me, my favorite image, though, is the, the Valley of Dry Bones. What I would refer to as the concept of, and the bones came together. One of my favorite 1970s made-for-TV horror films was named that. And the bones came together. It wasn't really uh, any more reference to the Bible after just taking the name. But by taking the name, it was able to trade in the currency of this idea of something coming back to life, this idea of resurrection. The main character wasn't named Lazarus because, in this case, it was a woman. <laughs> but it easily could have been. What do we think of when we talk about the lion's den or the fiery furnace? 
uh, imagery from Daniel's, you know, prophetic text. So Daniel in the lion den, or uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego emerging from the fiery furnace. No rest for the wicked. Not just the name of an Ozzy Osbourne album, but a phrase used in the Old Testament. Or the idea that the lamb lies down with the lion. To go all the way to the beginning, just kind of cut through all of the, I've hit my favorites, I suppose, but let's go back to the beginning and talk about Let There Be Light, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, the Tree of Life, the Tree of the Knowledge of Good and Evil, a snake in the grass, the apple being covered by a fig leaf. These are all ideas that come from the very beginning of the Bible, just two or three or four chapters, and I've laid all these references out that we take so for granted that we refer to them. If you notice that there's something that you ought to be ashamed of that you didn't realize you were ashamed of before, you might want to put a fig leaf on that. This is common currency in our mythology and in our storytelling. Later, still in the book of Genesis, you get these ideas like an eye for an eye or the Tower of Babel, Stairway to Heaven, Jacob's Ladder. Those stories are kind of related to each other. It's Gonna Rain, one of my favorite songs by Violent Femmes from their album Hallowed Ground, It's Gonna Rain. Who do you think I am? Well, I built this ark with Japheth, Shem, and Ham. And what do you think it's going to do if I live by faith and now my work is through? It's going to rain. Of course, there's another reference for It's Going to Rain. And that's our different drummer this week, Steve Reich. He began to warn the people. He said, after a while, it's going to rain after a while. For 40 days and for 40 nights. And the people didn't believe him. And they began to laugh at him. And they began to mock him. And they began to say, it ain't going to rain. I debated long and hard about whether to play a clip from It's Gonna Rain, Steve Reich's 1965 composition, made by him recording a fragment of a sermon by a black Pentecostal street preacher in San Francisco, I believe, named Brother Walter, by manipulating the tape, trying to get the end of the fragment to work, trying to make it more clear. He almost accidentally ended up with a tape loop that used It's Gonna Rain over and over again, creating, well, really a thunderstorm of cacophony and opening a new idea in Steve Reich's mind that was consistent with the work of his contemporaries, people that he'd met, like Terry Riley, who Reich was aware of at the time he was composing in C. The notion of taking things out of phase and creating a percussive instrumentation by bringing them back into phase. Our different drummer music today was from a clip from the beginning of part one of It's Gonna Rain, and we're going to end the segment for the different drummer by playing near the end of part two. Now, there's a good reason for just choosing a little clip here. Part of it is that I don't know that I'll have some listeners probably just can't sustain that much of this particular kind of difficult listening music. In this case, difficult listening classical music, but classical music that doesn't have any classical instruments to it. Now, Steve Reich's career didn't stay there, but his next work is still using spoken word, and maybe my favorite of his, a track called Come Out. In this case, rather than capturing the soundbite from a street preacher, 
warning people about you know where our behavior is going to ultimately lead that it's going to rain being what happened in the book of Genesis and the story of Noah but rain can take many metaphorical forms no this one was a clip of an interview of a kid who'd been injured in a riot in New York City i believe and he was being transferred from the prison to a hospital because he'd been injured and probably even had you know stress fracture or worse from the beating that he took either from other people involved in the riot or from the police. And his answer was, well, I had to open the bruise up and let some of the bruised blood come out to show them that I was really hurt. And he took that come out to show them clip, and that one in a really linear way goes completely out of phase until it is almost just a whisper by the time that it's over. These are not the only pieces of Steve Reich that I have on my MP3 player. I've got Violin Phase, Nagoya Marimbas, the Tokyo Vermont Counterpoint, and Desert Music. Desert Music might be my favorite full-length work by Reich because he's mixing together his own musical interpretation with the poetry of William Carlos Williams. So you've got a couple of things that I really enjoy. The simplicity and almost the irony of Williams' poetry together with the minimalist and repetitive nature of Reich's music. I actually only have that handful of songs on my MP3 player at any given time, which might be a a warning that some aspects of Steve Reich's work are not for the, well, they're not for the casual listener. As a casual listener, I've only got a handful of tracks that I really invest in, but I own many more full-length CDs, and it's one of the challenges with classical music that it's hard for me to listen to just movement one of a four-movement symphony or movement two of a three-part concerto. To me, on some level, it's nice to have the entire thing, but if you put the entire thing on one track, then the other type of listener who would rather just hear the first movement of Beethoven's fifth or the last movement of Beethoven's ninth, well, now they have to slog through all the rest of that when they encounter that track. So I don't know what the right answer is. I do know that when I finally decided to break down and purchase a copy of the solo piano work by Jevsky called The People United Will Never Be Defeated, I did finally find one that would be one single, one-hour-long track rather than cutting it up into bits and pieces. Because to me, that was a great example of a piece of classical music that simply has to be listened to end to end. Most of the works of Reich are similar. It is better to listen to the desert music in its entirety. But on my MP3 player, I've actually just carried around one particular slice of it on an everyday basis. And yeah, I don't know why that is. I guess it's my favorite, and it reminds me of the rest of the work. But for me to pick Third Movement Part 1 at the expense of the rest of the CD, on some level, seems wrong. But I also know that I don't have a single track available that has the entire desert music, you know, in one place. Unless I were to just jump into Steve Reich as an artist, turn Shuffle off, and listen to that one album end to end. Part of the reason I think that listening to an album end to end is in some ways inconsistent with Reich's entire, you know, approach to music, is that he has taken a somewhat disruptive, revolutionary approach He mixes things up and breaks them apart and slows them down and speeds them up. It's ironic that for a different drummer segment, I'm bypassing the entire Steve Reich album drumming, and I chose not to pick any clips from drumming. And it's a great example. I don't have drumming on CD because some of the CD releases that were initially put out were truncated. Instead, I've got my multi-LP box set downstairs that you know, one day is going to require me to put my turntable back together properly so that I can hear it the way I want. 
Let me end this segment with a quick blurb from SteveReich.com, just from the biography, because I think that some of these superlatives are going to come better from the mouths of other people than they're going to come from me. Steve Reich was recently called Our Greatest Living Composer by the New York Times, America's Greatest Living Composer by the Village Voice, the most original musical thinker of our time by the New Yorker, and among the great composers of the century, again by the New York Times. From his early tape speech pieces like It's Gonna Rain, 1965, and Come Out in 1966, to his and video artist Beryl Korot's digital video opera The Three Tales, 2002, Reich's path has embraced not only aspects of Western classical music, but the structures, harmonies, and rhythms of non-Western and American vernacular music, particularly jazz. Quoting this time from The Guardian of London, There's just a handful of living composers who can legitimately claim to have altered the direction of musical history, and Steve Reich is one of them. Note from those quotes, the reference to Steve Reich's references to American vernacular history. He makes references to the mythology of America. And there's something about those mythologies. George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. Johnny Appleseed crossing the West. Paul Bunyan and his big blue ox. There's something about those mythologies that are part of who we are. And if we lose those things, then we might not have an olive branch to offer each other when we get to the point where we finally fail to connect. In one of the first poetry episodes I did, with uh, naming Jim Carroll as a different drummer, I made a joking reference to the olive branch, because Jim Carroll made a joking reference to the olive branch, talking about the raven that was sent first off the ark didn't come back, because it was looking for something much better. It was looking for a flower, an orchid, or you know something, something much more impressive than just an olive branch. The joke's not funny if we don't understand what the dove is is said to have done in that piece of Jewish mythology. Looking back and turning into a pillar of salt. Storing grain for the future famine. In fact, probably some of you are already thinking, well, that's seven years, right? It's, that's another one of these numbers. Seven years of storing grain for a future famine. A baby in a basket. Now, if you connect baby in a basket with the Nile River, with Moses, then you understand the book of Exodus pretty well, probably better than your average person. But the idea of a baby in a basket showing up in cartoons later where if somebody can't take care of a baby and they leave it on the doorstep of a wealthy family and what is the baby in? Often as not, the baby in those cartoons is depicted as being in a basket. The land of milk and honey. A plague of frog or a plague of locust. Manna from heaven. Water from the rock. The Old Testament has more stories than I could possibly in one inappropriate conversations, bring up, much less discuss. Talked about numbers a little bit. Let me drop some numbers on you, just for fun. Let's have some fun with them. Forty years in the wilderness, says the heart and soul of the book of Exodus. Going out two by two. Relying upon the testimony of two witnesses, or the idea that whenever two, of you, two or more of you are gathered in Jesus' name, that the Holy Spirit is with you. 
the rains for 40 days and for 40 nights, or a betrayal happening at the sum of 30 pieces of silver, or the number 1,000 by itself. God is the owner of the cattle on a thousand hills, or in the book of Revelations, more on that in a minute, there's going to be thousand, a thousand years post-tribulation. Or in the book of Revelations, the number 144,000, which the book itself lays out pretty clearly as nothing more than the mathematical result of 12 times 12 times 1,000. And yet so many religious groups, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, find this impenetrably confusing, which frankly confuses me. And since we're on to Revelations, let's finish it up on the number side with seven bowls, seven trumpets, seven spirits, or four horsemen. What is it about those horsemen that makes them so interesting? Oh, they're the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Revelations begins with Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Heaven help us the day a politician introduces himself that way. It might be a sign that we're dealing with somebody who bears... I don't know, the mark of the beast, or perhaps the number of the beast. And you don't want to play that game because you could easily end up in a lake of fire. Or, I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears me and opens the door, I will come and I will dine with him. I stand at the door and knock. He is starting to quote Star Wars, Yay. and and he does it in character. Like, he quoted Luke Skywalker recently when my uh, SUV broke down in the Target parking lot, oh, no. and it was such a pain in the rear to fix it, and David had to have it towed, because, I mean, he's a pretty good mechanic, but he couldn't fix this problem, Aww. not in the parking lot. So, But later on our way home, we were just so exhausted, it was like 9 o'clock at night, and we're on our way home after him crawling around under this SUV in the parking lot and getting his nice business clothes was all oily and everything. He still retained the humor enough to turn to me halfway home and say, Uncle Owen, this R2 unit has a bad motivator. And I said, uh, hey, what are you trying to push on me? You know, you just earned your geek cred right there. That's by a little quoting bit Star Wars. Cred. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> he just laughed. What would have been really funny is if while he was working on it, you should have been like, would it help if I got out and pushed? <laughs> <laughs> I could have, but at that moment, probably not a good idea. Not a good idea. I'm Jen, and I'm Angela, and when you're not listening to this glorious podcast, we would love to have you listen to ours, The Anomaly Podcast. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Well, the last thing I wanted to do while dropping all of these names, because the Bible is such a large book, and it's easy for people to think, like, well, of course you're going to be able to drop references from a book that has so many different reference points to it. But let me focus on perhaps my favorite passage in all of the Bible. It's Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's just three chapters in one of the Gospels, identified under the heading typically as the Sermon on the Mount. And the entire time that those chapters are rolling past, you have one speaker. So from a character perspective, this is really easy. This is Jesus delivering a sermon on a hillside to a large number of people. That's the setting. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that there are more than a dozen references made in just that section alone. 
And that's not even dropping Christian language at you, like the Beatitudes or the Lord's Prayer. No, I'm just going to talk about little individual phrases that we know and that we can speak about with each other because we understand them, whether you're Christian or not. We understand them, whether you actually have an animosity toward religion, because these are part of our culture. They're part of the currency with which we communicate. And if you take away that currency, we'll have to use a lot more words and perhaps very different stories to make these references to each other. But let me offer something that I I mentioned briefly to Rich on that Tech Support Rich interview that we recorded, and that I believe just enough for it to be true enough to say. Now, let me be honest. I'm a Christian. I'm a very faithful Christian with a conservative understanding, not of world politics or events, but a conservative understanding of the biblical text. Therefore, I have no problem taking the Sermon on the Mount at face value and saying, hey, as close as anybody could have recorded back then, using the techniques of oral tradition, is probably pretty much what Jesus said. But I'm also willing to grant this, just for the sake of argument. Say that the entire Bible is fiction. Say it was written hundreds of years later by people who had no working knowledge of what happened at the time. Just got lucky that the things they described tie into the archaeology pretty well and match the writings of Tacitus, Josephus, Pliny, and others. Let's just say it's all fiction. Does it matter? I believe Juliet's fiction, and yet her standing on her ledge is so palpably meaningful that you do not need to provide any other explanation about what's being communicated there. If you say, hey, I felt like Juliet, peering out my window, standing at my ledge, looking for a Romeo who was not there. Anybody who had no idea who Romeo and Juliet were would be completely lost, right? But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if Shakespeare was recording real events that he eyewitnessed because he was somehow peering at them through the bushes in some sort of strange and creepy paradigm. So whether you view the Bible as fiction or fact is irrelevant. These are part of the language that we speak to each other. And if you lose your language, you've lost more than it's easy to recover. Here are just phrases and ideas dropped by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. The meek shall inherit the earth. You are the salt of the earth. If you lose your saltiness, what are you worth? Let your light shine for others. Be a city shining on a hill. Turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. Walk a mile in the other person's shoes. Love your enemies. This was not a common concept he was expressing to his Jewish listeners. And it would be even more foreign to Roman and Greek listeners. Turn the other cheek. Love your enemies. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand does. Or go into thy closet. If I were having a debate in a public forum with a right-wing, religious-right, evangelical-type person over prayer in schools, there's no way that debate gets very far in before I turn to him and say, Go into thy closet and close your door, and your heavenly Father, who sees you in private, will reward you accordingly. Your heart is where your treasure lies. You cannot serve two masters, in this case referring to both your, your calling through God and the love of money. You cannot serve two masters. Consider the lilies of the field. Look at how beautiful they are. The idea that God will take care of you just like he takes care of the wild flowers, the lilies of the valley. Judge not lest ye be judged. The speck 
in your brother's eye. Don't presume to take the log out of your brother's eye while you have a speck in your own eye. Don't presume to take a speck out of your brother's eye while you have a log in your own eye. Please tell me that we haven't already reached the point where this isn't common currency. I'll be very disturbed if I find out in feedback that I receive that some of these, or most of these, are completely foreign to everybody who isn't a Christian. And because I'm going to assume that that means that there's also a lot of Christians for whom this notion of throwing your pearls before swine is a you know, something they've never heard before. Jesus specifically says, "Don't waste your words on people who refuse to think and listen." They're just going to trample on everything you say. Don't throw your pearls before swine. They will just trample them under their feet. Enter through the narrow gate. Watch out for the wolf in sheep's clothing. Or build your house upon the rock. Because the man who builds his house upon sand will lose his house when the waters rise. If there's one message in this particular inappropriate conversations show that I'd like to push forward, said that we need to build our house upon the rock. We as a people have taken for granted the things that have been given to us in language and in culture, not just by the Bible. I picked the Bible. I could have easily picked Shakespeare. If we are unable to communicate in the terms of our cultural legacy, at some point something's going to be lost that might not be possible to so easily rebuild. Our attention spans have become lower and lower and shorter and shorter over time. At first it was blamed on radio, then it was blamed on television. To these days it's easy to blame it on the computer and the PC and the smartphone. But guess what? The shorter our attention spans get, the more important it is that we can share with each other as quickly and as visually as saying, build your house upon the rock. Let's build our language upon the rock too. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this inappropriate conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. The website at inappropriateconversations.org has show notes and comments are enabled there. I also can be followed on Twitter at IC underscore Greg. And on Facebook, there is a separate page, both for inappropriate conversations as a cause and for walk the earth, more or less as a ministry. Finally, you can listen to this show on Stitcher.com. Stitcher Radio is a good way to carry podcasts with you wherever you go without having to own the memory on your smartphone or on your MP3 player. Just call up Stitcher.com and you can tap into the latest episodes there. Thanks for listening. Marab with sails unfurled. Temba. His arms open. Timber. At rest. Thank you. Power has been restored, sir. New friends, Captain? You can't say, number one. But at least they're not new enemies.